are a culture obsessed with change. Some of us are consumed with changing our possessions. We want something different. We want something new. Perhaps it's new technology or new music or maybe new clothes. Others of us are more concerned with having our circumstances changed. Maybe a new job, perhaps better health or a better financial situation. We are creatures who yearn for change. This was illustrated to Gloria and I as we were in the process of moving into a new villa in Murdoff. We were looking for a new villa. We spent several weeks trying to find the perfect villa, not just for us to live in, but for the church to use for different events, for church offices, for interns to live in, to host different events. And so we looked and looked and looked, and after weeks of looking, we didn't find anything. Then long last, finally, after two months, we found the villa that we currently live in. And it was in shambles. I mean, there were holes in the walls and in the doors. Old carpets were torn up and the tile floor was cracking. And there were cats living in the house. <laughs> there were cats everywhere, homeless, wild cats. They had turned the kitchen into a sandbox They had lived and called the cabinets their homes. They were everywhere. It's as if someone closed down their pet shop in Dubai and dumped all their cats off in Murdoff before they moved out of the country. And all those cats gathered at our house, at this house, everywhere. Cats. And I don't like cats. (laughs) Everywhere. It was crazy. And behind one of the doors upstairs in one of the bedrooms, there was a list of rules for a teenager living there who apparently had an anger problem. (laughs) It became clear to us that he might have been the person responsible for all the holes in the walls and in the doors leading into his room. (laughs) We also saw that the air conditioner was old, the grass was dying, the bushes all around the property lay dead, neglected. And so we left the house that day telling the real estate agent, no way, no way, we're not even making an offer. See you later. My wife said, you couldn't even pay me to live at this house. (laughs) The real estate agent looked chagrined and angry, walked away, and we didn't mention it another time that night. Just drove home, back to Discovery Gardens. But the next day we woke up, and each of us independently had a strong desire to go back to the same villa again (laughs) to check on the cats. (laughs) See if they're still there. (laughs) But this time, upon arriving in Murdoff and upon going to the villa, we looked at it kind of with different eyes. We looked at it as if it were restored, as if it were changed. We saw kids in the church playing together in the yard. We saw that the long driveway could be used to put dozens of tables so that people could sit together and laugh with one another and get to know each other. We saw people bringing in food for potlucks and putting them on the big dining room table in the dining room. We saw the music team practicing and rehearsing together in the Redeemer office. We saw the staff team gathering and praying together in the pastor's study. We saw the ladies' ministry meeting for Bible study in the living room. 
And we saw all the available, available parking spaces in front of the house. And we realized right there on the spot that this was the villa that we had been looking for. Now, was it the exact same villa each of those days? It was the exact same villa, the exact same cats, the exact same problems. Everything was the same. Except that on the second day, we saw what could be changed. We saw what could be a new reality. There was much work to be done. A lot of change was needed. But this was the villa. And so we made an offer, got the villa, and we started working on it. It took some time, but in the end, everything changed. It looked like a completely different villa. Through all the hard work, it proved that it was, it was worth it. It was worth the work. You and I are, in some ways, just like this villa. When you stand in the front yard of your life and look back at yourself and examine yourself, what do you see? What's got your eye? Do you only see problems, give up and walk away? Do you only see the problems and become so defensive that you angrily pretend they aren't there? Or do you see the problems the way God sees the problems? Ever present, sure, but with hope in his power to change you. See, each and every one of us is a mess. We are a big mess. We all have issues. They may be different between one another, but we all have them. We're all falling apart. And so the change most needed in our lives isn't change in any of our possessions or in our situations or relationships, but inside of us. There's work to be done in cleaning out the inner recesses of our hearts. There are parts of us that are dead, parts that are trashed or neglected, parts of our lives that have holes in it, in need of repair. But thankfully, even though we are a mess, thankfully we are the object of God's lifelong work of change. This morning, we're going to take a look at what Paul says about this change. The most important change in our lives, how we are changed from the inside out, how we grow spiritually. We're going to look at the joy of spiritual growth. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. We're going to continue our 12-week look into the book of Philippians. And in this passage, we'll see that Paul gives us two ingredients for radical change in our lives. God and ourselves. That God needs to be at work in our lives, and we are called to strive for change as well. God works, and we work. These two points will be intertwined together throughout the passage. And then we'll look at three ways from the passage that we work in the verses that follow. So let's, let's start and see how Paul explains this, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, well, let's stop there. That sounds like a good place to take a break and stop for a minute. <laughs> Therefore, it's actually a super important word in our Bibles. It's not something that we just pass over lightly. Whenever we see this word and when we study our Bibles, we need to stop our reading and go back and see what we just read and how it connects to the passage 
that we're studying. So we look back, and those of us that were here last week, we saw that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, who humbly came into human history as a man to live a perfect life without sin. That he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, conquering our enemies of sin and death, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God. So that's where we read last week. And in light of that greatness of Jesus, we saw that the humility of Jesus is our model, that we are to live like Jesus, for Jesus, with Jesus, and by the power that Jesus gives us. Therefore, in light of what Christ has done for you and your imitation of him, verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So Paul's urging the Philippians and us today that we are to continue to work out this great salvation with fear and trembling. Now we need to stop here for a moment and talk about this verse as it's looking at it at face value. It's a bit difficult to understand. Does Paul mean here that we can work for our salvation? That we can earn it by our good works? It can't be, can it? Because of what the rest of the Bible says. But Paul even says elsewhere in the New Testament. You may know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one, so that no one can boast. And well, what about the Old Testament? Is it, is it different in the Old Testament? We notice the Apostle Paul gives us commentary on the Old Testament in Romans chapter 4. And he says of Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And furthermore, he says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So what Paul says and what the whole Bible says is that each and every one of us is dead in our trespasses and lost without him. So if you're here today, maybe you're new and perhaps you don't follow Christ, realize that the Bible says all of us have sinned and that it is God who saves. Nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Our, our helplessness to earn our salvation has often been illustrated by a swimmer swimming out in the sea. Imagine you're that swimmer and you're pedaling around and perhaps you get taken in by the taken out by the current and you begin to drown. Perhaps you imagine that God is there throwing you a life preserver. Perhaps you see it and you swim over to it and you grab it and God pulls you into the boat and saves you. And yet the Bible says that that picture of our salvation is totally and completely false. A more accurate illustration would be you and I are both, both dead 
both dead without God. We resisted any life preserver. We swam on our own. We drowned and lay dead on the bottom of the ocean, rotting. And yet God, in his infinite mercy and in his infinite grace, reached down into the depths of the ocean, an ocean made of our own sin and wickedness and rebellion, and he scooped up our dead bodies. He scooped them up and breathed life into us, restored us to himself, gave us new life, and will ultimately glorify us on the last day. So no, we weren't paddling around waiting for salvation. We rejected God. And even in our death, though, even in our rejection and utter rebellion, God went down and gave us new life. The most unbelievable message in the world. There was nothing you and I could do to save ourselves, but God is the author of salvation from the first day until now, in which we respond by repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus. So if you're still here today and you're, you've been trying to earn your salvation, if you're here and you've been trying to do good works for God to achieve new life, then give up that quest today. Give up that quest and come to God. Turn from your sin and believe unto Him and you will be saved. So Paul's clearly saying that we cannot work for our salvation. It's only by grace you've been saved. So whenever we get a difficult verse in Scripture, what we need to do is we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So at a time like this, we look at the rest of the Bible. So we looked at some other passages already. We don't want to build a bad theology based on a misunderstanding of one verse. So we see what the rest of Scripture has on the topic. It also helps us to look at the context around the verse to get help. And so in this case, it's to our detriment if we stop at verse 12 without looking at verse 13. Notice what we read in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So the next verse clarifies it as well. It's God who works in us. It's God who brings about any good work in us, including believing unto him for salvation. And furthermore, when we look at verse 12, we see that Paul's not thinking here of any good works we may contribute. The text doesn't say work to acquire your salvation, for God has done his bit and now it's up to you. Nor does he say, you may already have your salvation, now persevere. It depends entirely on you. It also doesn't say let go and let God. Just relax. Just relax and let the Spirit carry you. No, we are, to work, we are not to work for it or to work it up, but we are to work it out. We are to work at our salvation, meaning to produce change in our lives. Remember what Jerry read this morning from Ezekiel 36. It said that when we become a believer, we are washed clean. We are born again. And God gives us a new heart. And he begins to change us from the inside out. He gives us new desires through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, now we know that God saves us. He gives us new hearts. But then what exactly is this relationship between our work and God's work after we're saved? We need not, I think, put 
verse 12 against verse 13 as if they contradict one another, but instead see how they actually complement each other. These verses actually present the mystery known as God's divine sovereignty, meaning he's in total control, and man's responsibility. What Paul is saying is that you submit to God in this process called sanctification, which is the process of ongoing maturity growing into Christ-likeness. It's something that goes on throughout our whole lives. It's something that, that God works in us and we work with him to become more like him. One theologian has said it's kind of like two pedals on a bicycle. Right? God works and you respond. God gives you a desire and you obey him. God convicts you of sin and you repent. God teaches you something, you learn it. Together you make progress divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. So this complex issue is actually quite easy to resolve. He says in verse 12, it's all you and it's all God. What he doesn't do is he doesn't harmonize it for us. Very simply, it simply takes all we are and all God is. It demands that I make a commitment that we all make a commitment to daily live in the service of Jesus Christ And at the same time, God is working in us. The answer is it's all us and it's all God in sanctification. In Christian life, we need not emphasize one or the other too much. If we emphasize that it's only God who works in us, we get lazy. We tend to be passive. But on the flip side, we need not put too much pressure on ourselves as if it all relies on us. And we're constantly worried about whether we are impressing God enough or whether we are growing enough. We are simply to work out what God in his grace has worked in. So it's all us and all God. Now look at verse 14. We're going to begin to see these three things now that we are to work out in our salvation. He addresses the first one in verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. These are convicting words already. (laughs) Now when you reread these words immediately, they make us think of the story of the Exodus, don't they? And how gross that sin looks to us. Every time I read Exodus, I just start yelling at the Israelites. Do you do that? You know, why are you complaining? Don't you get it? Have you not just seen what God has done? I mean, the Nile has turned into blood. Frogs are flying from the sky. <laughs> and, and you just walk through the Red Sea. You just walk through the Red Sea. Water was, was hanging in the sky. And you walked on dry ground while God judged and defeated the Egyptians. Can't you remember just six weeks ago? He saved you. Are you kidding me? Can't they remember? I just start yelling at them. Do you ever yell at your Bible? Just yelling at those Israelites. It makes for exciting devotional times when you do that. (laughs) Just yell at them. They kept complaining. You see, time and time again, they complain, they grumble, they argue. And it says that they were walking on a journey for 40 years. 40 years. I don't like the food. I don't like the weather. I hate to walk. I hate the people. I've seen the sand before. You said you're a good God and there's no good food. The man is disgusting. It gets stuck between my teeth and I'm out of floss. Give me something else. 
<laughs> you said you were leading us to a good place, but all I see is a bad place. We haven't seen anything good yet. And they just complain. And they just grumble. And this went on for 40 years. It's a long time to walk in circles. There was an ancient Near East highway that went from the Red Sea off to the Promised Land. It would have taken them, it should have taken them, a maximum of three weeks to walk there. And yet they walked in circles for 40 years. They would complain and God would say, give me another lap around the desert. I'll see you again in a minute. You know? And he sends them around again and they kept complaining and arguing. And finally God said, well, your generation will just die in the wilderness. It's your children who will get the promised land. And a whole generation died in the wilderness. That's how serious the sin of complaining is. And Paul wants us to see why it's such an unacceptable behavior. He's not trying to highlight it merely because it's words that come out of our mouth. And for the Israelites, it wasn't merely words that came out of their mouths, but what those words represent about what's happening in our hearts. I once had a theology professor that said, the tongue is not slippery because it's wet, but because it's connected to the heart. Because it's connected to the heart. Luke 6 says the same thing. It says that out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. My complaining is an expression of my arrogance. Every word of complaint I utter is a bold expression of my sinful pride and arrogance. God says that the root of complaining is really unbelief and pride. Because at the moment you complain about your job or the moment you complain about your spouse, you are saying that you don't believe God is good. You're saying that what you want is better than what God has provided. And when you complain or argue, you might think that you're complaining and arguing doesn't have anything to do with God. But it's all about God. It's all about Him. You might be upset with your husband or wife, but you are really angry with God. And you are screaming, where are your promises now? Why aren't my circumstances better? When we complain, we say that we know better than God for our situation. That our plans are better. It's completely prideful. As I studied this passage and looked back at the Exodus passage this week, I realized that God's holiness is more offended at my complaining than I ever thought. We are reminded of this when we remember the cross, that the cross shuts down all complaining. Because when we are tempted to say that we deserve better, to be treated with more respect, to be shown more appreciation, the cross says, no, this is what you deserve. The cross says that you and I deserve much worse than we have ever imagined. The cross says because of the death and resurrection of Christ, though, we have received far better than we have ever imagined. The forgiveness of sin, the everlasting life, adoption as sons and daughters of God. This is serious. This is a serious sin. It's so hard. I had much repenting to do yesterday as I was finishing preparation, even much repenting to do this morning. Because in reality, you and I are just like the Israelites. 
We are no different. And as you sit here this morning and think about this, I encourage you to stop the temptation of merely elbowing the person next to you to wake up and listen. Or applying this point to someone else that you know. <laughs> I know that whenever I hear a sermon about something like complaining or something else convicting, I instantly think about who this applies to. And I think of ways of sending them the sermon link or anonymously bringing them a CD of the sermon and putting it at their door and you know, pushing the doorbell and running really fast around the corner. <laughs> because the last person that we think is a complainer is ourselves, right? It's the last person we think. You might think that the only time you complain is when you complain about complainers. (laughs) It's always easier to point to somebody else. It's always easier to notice that sin, isn't it? (laughs) I think it would be helpful for each of us over this next week to spend some time examining our hearts to see if we have a complaining spirit. Do you complain about other people? Do you complain about your circumstances or perhaps about what God is doing in your life? or what he isn't doing. Either way, it's a direct assault on God himself. And perhaps it would be helpful for you to ask someone this week. If you don't think you complain a lot, ask someone and see what they say, see what they answer, and don't argue with them. If they snicker when you ask or are silent for a moment as they figure out how to break it to you, (laughs) you're probably a complainer. It's probably you. But listen. Listen to what they say. Because we need to be careful with our words. The prideful heart that brings out grumbling, that brings out arguing, can tear families and churches apart. Paul Tripp has illustrated this in regards to buying a new car. When you drive a new car, it smells new, it looks new, you take great care of it, it's exciting. But one day, your car all of a sudden just quits being new. And you begin doing things you wouldn't do before, right? But perhaps when you first got it, you know, you drove to Dubai Mall and you parked it up a kilometer away all by itself and you made sure no other cars were nearby and you looked at it and uh, took good care of it so it wouldn't get any scratches. But then six months later, you're double parking on top of a curb and bird you buy at rush hour. You just don't care. You're just putting the car wherever. You just want to make sure it's there when you get back to it, right? You stop taking care of it. The first scratch kills you, but by the 50th, you don't even notice. You know, you don't even notice. I think this happens with our words as well. We forget how powerful and valuable our words are. When we're first married, you know, we're very careful with our words. And you're very tender with your spouse. I remember all the sweet notes I used to write, Gloria, and the sweet things I used to say. But after several years of marriage, we get careless, don't we? We get less intentional. We get less deliberate. You forget how special your wife is. You forget how special your spouse is. Or perhaps the first week on a new job, you're really careful how you speak to your boss, aren't you? Or in class, you're really careful how submissive and kind you are to your professors and your teachers. But then all of a sudden, your words are more careless. You don't seem like you care anymore. Time goes on. And we become reckless. But I think we need to be reminded this morning how powerful our words are. Proverbs 12, 18 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword. So when we're tempted to complain or argue or say something critical, you might ask yourself, 
are these words necessary? Does this space of silence need what I've got to say? Is this going to encourage someone or is it going to tear them down? The bottom line is that you and I would stop arguing and complaining if we understood ourselves better in light of what Christ has done. Remember last week? In light of Christ's humility, complaining and arguing are ugly monsters. Now, he's not saying regarding complaining that you need to lie when you're sad or when you're hurt. It doesn't mean that if you get hit by a car and someone asks how you're doing, you've got to put on a happy face, get the tambourines out and shout, Rejoice in the Lord always! God is good, I'm great! You know, it doesn't mean that we put on a face. We need to be honest with one another. Paul was honest, right? He said, I'm in prison. I might die. I'm suffering. I'm lonely. He talked about his imprisonment. He talked about his circumstances. But he did so in a way as to not complain, but to give thankfulness to God. Well, here's the reason why we're not to complain or argue. Look at verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. I don't know what you complain about. I don't know what you argue about, whether it's a difficult relationship or health situation or money problem, but God has ordained what is happening in your life as a circumstance, as an opportunity for you to worship the Savior. Because it's easy to obey when he tells us to do something that we want to do or when life is good. But when everything God tells us to do is against what we want to do or when our circumstances are far different than what we would have planned it, friends, this is when you and I have a unique opportunity a unique opportunity to bring a smile to the face of the Savior and shine like bright lights in the universe. I think it's a good way for us to think about this regarding, regarding to being a light, specifically to think about the moon. It generates no light on its own, though when it is properly positioned, the moon beams light. Let her do what she was made to do in the big dark ball of dirt becomes a source of inspiration. It's because the moon reflects a greater light. The way you shine as, light, as lights in a dark culture is by stopping your complaining and arguing and emphasizing our sincere gratitude for what God has done in our lives. And look at verse 16. We see the second thing that we are to work out our salvation. Second thing that makes us shine as we work it out is as you hold out the word of life. As you hold out the word of life. When we do that, we shine like stars. What he's talking about here is holding fast to the word of life, the word of God, the living word. It means to hold tight to it. It means believing it. It means following it. That we give our lives to the Bible, to his word. We're reminded of this in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, where we are told to not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. To meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. 
It's the way we shine as lights. The second way we shine as lights is by holding fast to the word of God. John Piper has put it this way. Life and power and health and fruitfulness are mediated from God through his word. This is the way he has decided to do it. If we stay away from the word, the light will grow dim. The word is the fuel of our lamps. You shine holding fast the word. The word is the fuel of your lamp. This is the only way we can truly shine is if, if we store the Bible in our hearts. If we soak it in, our light goes out. So read God's word. Delight in God's word. Set aside time each day to dwell in the riches of what he's given it to us. It's a great gift. And it doesn't have to be a lot each day. But God's word is the primary way that he speaks to us today. So I encourage you to make and set up a meeting with God each day. Make it the most important meeting in your life, in your day. Perhaps schedule it in in your calendar. Because no meeting is more important than meeting with God. I think we'd all say that, but let's make changes in our lives to make sure that's happening. As soon as we neglect hearing from God, we become unhelpful for ourselves and for the church. So the second thing is hold fast to God's word. And finally, the third thing we're to do is seen in verse 16 and following. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So the third thing Paul mentions is that Christians are to bring joy to their leaders. That those pastors and elders, that, that those leaders would not labor for nothing. The imagery is of a runner running in a stadium. That as he completes the course, he's run a good race, but when he gets to the end, he finds out that he's been disqualified. That he has exerted himself needlessly for nothing. And so this is Paul's great fear in his ministry. He's saying that one day we're all going to stand before Jesus. And he says, I want to stand before God proud of you. I want to stand before God proud of the Philippian church. And I can agree with him that the greatest joy of a pastor, that the greatest joy of an elder is that as we give our lives to ministry, we see people who change. We see people who become more like Christ. People who deal with their sin. People who stop complaining and arguing. Who hold fast to the word of life and make a huge impact for Christ. But I think the greatest fear for a pastor is that you give your whole life to the ministry and yet people don't change. They don't become more like Jesus. Because in Hebrews 13 it says that all leaders, all pastors, all elders will take account before God for how well they led the church. Now that's a scary thought. And it scares me on a regular basis that we as leaders of this church will take account before God one day for how well we've led this church. It's the most sobering thing for any church leader. So in the same way as Paul, I want to be proud of us. I want to be proud of you. I want to be proud of this church. 
I want to be proud that one day when I stand before Jesus, that I will be proud of Redeemer Church of Dubai, that we were a group of men and women who were changed, who loved Jesus with all of their hearts, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, and with all of their strength. That's what Paul is saying here. He wants the Philippians to bring him joy by changing from the inside out, by working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Nothing brings a pastor more joy than this. Not a new church building, not the granting of land in, even here in the UAE, not a big offering, not more attendance. Nothing brings more joy. Nothing brings more joy than spiritual growth and people loving Jesus more and people coming to know him. And that's what must bring us the most joy here at Redeemer. It's what Paul, Paul's talking about here. And it brings so much joy to a leader that the leader is willing to die for it. Did you see that in verse 17 and 18 when he mentions a drink offering? The drink offering in these biblical days was meant to accompany a larger sacrifice. Here Paul talks about the Old Testament practice of pouring out wine to accompany the main sacrifice. It was a small thing which brought a major offering to completeness. And Paul says that he would count it but joy that he had labored to weariness if by this means he can put a finishing touch to their appointed sacrifice of work, character, and ministry. So he was prepared to pour out his lifeblood as a drink offering to complete their faith. He was willing to die for them if it meant spiritual growth for the Philippians. He loved them so much that even if he dies, he rejoices and he tells them to rejoice with him. He tells the Philippians to rejoice even if I lay dead. And so this passage ends much like the whole book of Philippians does with a command for joy. It ends with four mentions of joy or gladness in the final two verses because there is much joy when God is continuing to work in us to will and to act according to his purposes, regardless of our circumstances. There is joy when we do this, when we shine like stars. Because as we do this, we are changed from the inside out and we become more like Christ. What greater joy do we have than this? Let's pray and ask God to do this work in our church. Father, we pray that we would be a people most concerned about becoming more like you. Would we make it our life goal to always be working out our salvation with fear and trembling? That we would stop complaining. That we would hold fast to your word. That we would bring joy to those in church leadership. That we would be most concerned with what brings you joy. Father, help us to love you Help us to praise you this day. And it it is in Christ's mighty name that we pray. Amen.